First, just a test to see how the sound is. Sound pretty good? Is it too loud or is it okay? No, it's right. Okay, good. There's a story I've heard that uh, Ajahn Chah, who was a master in the Thai forest tradition in the last century, that he would sometimes walk up to people when they were doing that slow walking meditation. And he'd look around and he'd see people and he'd walk up to them and go, I hope you're better soon. And go to someone else. You okay? Pretty strange thing we're doing, isn't it? I was, when I came up the walkway just now, and everybody was sitting there, and it was quite beautiful, everybody was sitting there. But you can't help but wonder, all these people say there's a perfectly good hall here. <laughs> What's everybody doing out there? You know, there is sometimes when you sort of step back and sometimes when, especially when you're in the midst of the of a challenging sit, waiting for the bell to ring or you're trying to walk more slowly or maybe when you're dodging the poison oak, you wonder, okay, what are we doing? Why are we doing this? What's going to happen? Very reasonable questions to ask. So I thought I'd share this evening a little bit of one way of understanding what we're up to and start with the why we're doing it outside. And we already spoke to this some last night and you've heard us speaking it today. So I won't spend a lot of time with that. But just to have you see how it flows into um, these larger questions of what we're doing and why we're doing this. So hopefully today you started to sense that when we practice outside, that there is the possibility of a kind of relaxation an ease that might come. And some of what's happening there, we spoke about this last night, is our sense of identity, of the I, me, and mine, is having the opportunity to relax. We're not in conversation with anybody. We're not having to create a me here that is responding to you. And the trees, and I just saw a couple of those cute little quail with their little head plumes. They may be looking at each other, but they really don't care what you're thinking or what you're doing. And that's such a relief, isn't it? That to feel free from being judged, from performing, from showing up in a particular way. And the natural world really invites that. It also invites a slowing down. It's moving at a different pace than we're used to. And when we go and we sit out there, it's, we're just slowly absorbing that slower pace. Could you feel that today? Notice that? the invitation to slow down. And a lot of our interactions with another aspect is a lot of our interaction with the natural world reinforces a dualistic split, particularly of Western culture, the split of mind and body, nature and the human-made, 
ideas about the feminine and the masculine. And what we start to realize when we sit out there is that all these splits are artificial. That the mind and the body are not two separate things. They're both unfolding phenomena happening. Nature is not different than us. We are nature. We're this very particular, very individual expression of nature. Each of us, all, each a fabulous rose on a, on a bush. We also, when we practice in nature, there's a kind of simple clarity about things, about the way things are, that things are born and they grow and they get old and they die. And when we see this in the natural world, sometimes it definitely touches our hearts. I'm not saying it's not without its impact, but we can see how it is the natural unfolding. When we see a tree lying on the ground, I was recently hiking on the east side of the Sierras, and there were these very large trees. And sometimes there'd be one on the ground, and you could see the stump where it had been. And there was a kind of uh, respect, almost a reverie, for its previous majesty. And now it's on the ground, and it's there to break down and rot and nourish the ground and the future trees and all the other bugs and animals that it will do. And there's a naturalness to it. And so we don't feel the need to resist that. And as we drop this sense of resistance and see that we are part of it, we have the opportunity to see, oh yeah, these things are happening all around me in my life. And I'll talk about this in more detail. But recognizing that this is the way of things. And the natural world shows us this without exaggeration, without drama, just does it. We also sit outside because of the potential for us in response to what's there, this settledness that is here. And we can do this inside or outside. But for many of us, for the reasons I just mentioned, it comes almost more naturally outside. I've run across a lot of people who say, oh, my meditation practice is being outside, is going for a walk. And there's some truth in that because there's some natural way that the settledness comes to us. We come into the present moment more easily. And by being outside and making a choice to come into the present moment, we're having these two reinforce each other and allowing us to arrive perhaps a little more easily. This settledness, though, as you have already discovered, requires some mind training. Our minds are all over the place a lot of the time. And so part of what we're doing in this practice is cultivating some ability to bring the mind to where we put it and to have it stay there and to lose some of that scattered. I don't know about you, but sometimes I walk from one room into the next and I don't know why I walked there. What, what was the purpose of that? And this is after 30 years of meditation. So I don't know what it was like before that. I hope at least on the way I paid attention to my steps. So 
you know, this scatteredness and the ability to stay and what that does when we stay, there's the possibility of clarity. The mind is so powerful. Sometimes we have a sense of this. And the Buddha said one of the imponderables that like we can't even understand is the power of the concentrated mind. The mind that is all, concentration means all collected, not running all over the place, right here. And so in this practice, that's one of the things we're doing that's very, very important, is that we're collecting the mind, helping it learn how to stay put, We take a lot of journeys in the mind, into the past, into the future. How many people in this room are planners? Oh, good. I have friends. And I could also say, how many are warriors? It's another version of in the futuring, right? And then we have our versions for the past. And we spend a lot of time in these different worlds that aren't here. I'm not saying it's not useful to plan, but how much time do you spend planning things that never happen? I had someone who came on a retreat once, and at the end of the retreat, he said, you know, I figured something out. I spend most of my time planning conversations that never happen. And he just was like, wow, I've spent 40 years planning conversations that never happened. What are you planning or worrying about that never happens? So part of what happens with this collecting of the mind is that we're giving our mind a vacation of a certain kind a vacation from running all over, grabbing after whatever it thinks is candy. But the candy turns out to be very unsatisfactory. And just resting in the present moment turns out to have a lot of possibility. A lot is here. Because as the mind settles, as we stop running around, we have the opportunity to see what is here, what's really here, not what's made up, not our story, not how we wish it was, not how we've been told it has been or how it is, but to see it for ourselves. What is this moment? What is here? Like, what is reality? What is, what is happening all around me? And the Buddha said, when we do this, there's three very important things that we will see, or that three ways of seeing the world as it unfolds around us. And the three things he spoke of that are very important for us to see our impermanence, to see what is unsatisfactory, dukkha, to see dukkha for what it is. Dukkha is the Pali word, and it's sometimes translated as suffering, but some, in some ways unsatisfactoriness is a better translation. That's, he said, you'll see both impermanence, the change. You'll see the truth of what is unsatisfactory, what causes dukkha. And you'll see that you are not a separate, isolated, permanent self. That you are not isolated. That the skin does not define you that there's not a permanent me in here. Now, if that last one I said, you sort of, what? That's okay. Mark's going to explain it all in a couple nights. And tomorrow, 
Jaya will talk about dukkha. So from here, I want to talk about that first one, impermanence. What do we see? Well, obviously, impermanence means we see change. And there's a lot of different layers on which we can see change. And this isn't news. You, you know that things change. I remember um, early on in my years of teaching, all of you filled out a practice, uh, practice form that sort of said what's happening in your life. And sometimes, you know, somebody would say, I'm in transition, and it's challenging between this and this, or I'm in transitions, and I'd go, oh, yeah, okay, yeah, transitions. And then the next person, I'm in transitions, and then the next person, I'm in transitions. And I'm like, oh, right, we're all in transitions all the time. Of course that's uncomfortable, especially when we think that we're not supposed to be in transitions. So part of what the gift of starting to see this is to realize everything, all of us, the world, everything is in transition all the time. And we can see this just in different layers. So one immediate layer is that we'll come back to but I want to just start there and then circle back to it. It's just right here, immediate, the present moment. Just notice that the words that I just said are gone. The silence that was just there is gone. The thought you were thinking in response to something I said is gone. Whatever experiences you had today, they're gone. What's happening in your mind right now? what's happening in your body. It's gone now. That moment is gone. Kind of wild when you think about it, right? As soon as you notice what something is, it's already gone. If as I say that, you get a little queasy even, a little like, whoa, that's a little, you're getting closer. You're, you're having just a little momentary glimpse into just how impermanent everything is. But, and we see it all the time. The, in the natural world, one of the wonderful things is that we just see it like in the day. The sun rises and it moves and it passes. The moon is, I remember not long ago, it was full and now it's at half and it'll fade away. We're in spring, fading into summer. The natural world is such, all you have to do is just look and you see these changes occurring. One of the things that's funny and one of the, that's great about practicing outside is that part of what our culture has done, the modern world has done, is taken away some of that direct contactfulness with change. We live inside houses and we turn on lights. And I mean, sometimes if you live in a city and you just, you could go months without knowing what's happening with the moon. You could not really be paying attention to when the sun rises or sets. Sometimes if you live in certain environments, the seasons aren't even obvious. And so in some ways, and I'll come back to this, our our modern world is kind of set up to try to protect us from the way things are changing. I live in the Red Rock Desert in southeastern Utah. And one of the things that I really like there is there's a lot of exposed rock. Lots of big red canyons and cliffs. And and it's like this palpable reminder to me of this very 
large changes that are happening all the time. That all those layers, and this is like just a blip in time in this vast changing geologically, evolutionarily. We're all a bunch of big bang dust wandered into this century and then out again. We can see it in human culture. It's different. We live in a different world than our parents did. Maybe even than our older sisters or brothers, if we had those. We live in a different world than 10 years ago, than five years ago. Maybe even, certainly a different world than before March 2020. All they have to do is look at the difference in the room to recognize that. Last six months. And then there's the very personal transitions that happen. The birth, aging, coming through the different phases of our lives. The transitions between different places we live, different people who we're with and who are important. And that ultimate transition of death. I was once walking, I was doing walking meditation down by the creek. It's dry right now, but down by the creek. It's very sad. There was a walking path back and forth, and I think it's grown over now. But it was a lovely place to walk. And I was doing walking meditation, and I saw something wriggling in the grass. And, and I could see there was a tail. But it was very strange because I looked for the other end. And there was another tail. And I was like, that doesn't make sense. And then I, it sort of wriggled around and started moving more. And I realized what I was looking at was a snake, one tail, that had, what, uh, had a lizard in, deep inside its mouth. The lizard was about two-thirds in the snake's mouth. And so I was seeing the other tail. And I, I was standing there look, looking at it, and the and because I'd walked up, apparently I startled the whole event, and the lizard had his moment. I guess the the snake lost his grip a little bit, and right there, the lizard wiggled his way out and escaped. I was like, whoa. And then I was like, oh, wow, great, the lizard lived. And then I was like, oh, shucks, the snake didn't get dinner. And then I was like, oh, the lizard lived. And then it came to me. The lizard is already dead. The lizard is going to die, just like us. Sooner, later, this is what happens. Maybe not this time. But in a certain way, when you look clearly, the lizard is already dead. The transitions are constantly happening. Things fall apart. I've recently had the experience i have a lot of um a lot of bowls and pottery like just sort of ceramic stuff that i've collected over many years i like those things they're really sometimes friends have made them or they come from peep gifts or been collected and a lot of them have been around quite a while for me and i've noticed that I used to get very upset when one got broken. I'd be like, oh, that's the one Vicky made and gave me. Oh, this is horrible. Be very painful. Then another one would get broken. Oh, Dave made that. And I'd be really upset. And then somewhere along the way, 
I started to understand that they were all going to break. It was in their nature to break. They're ceramic. And then it got easier. Like, oh, yeah, that one broke. Mm -hmm. Boy, it had a good life. We had a good life together. Yep. And there might be that little tinge, right, when it happens. Oh, shucks. And it's like, yeah, it's in its nature. Maybe they're not breaking fast enough. I'm going to break before they all break. It's okay. It's in their nature to break. It's in my nature to die. It's in the nature of this body to fall apart. Doesn't mean I'm not trying to keep it together, but that's its nature. And we can sense this transition on a very, on these bigger levels, but also on a very moment to moment level with the breath. There's an inhale, it has a beginning, it has a middle, it has an end. Sounds come and go. You're sitting in the shade and the next thing you know you're sitting in the sun and the temperature changes. The Buddha pointed to all this impermanence, and he said what is impermanent is unsatisfactory, unreliable, and not I. If we try to build our lives on things that aren't stable, we'll be frustrated, we'll be unhappy. And first we have to hear a teaching like this. We hear about impermanence. And then we reflect on it. And then there are those moments when we know it for ourselves. We see clearly just how fragile and temporary everything is. And why is this important? Why does this free us? Because we spend so much time resisting it. And it turns out the resisting of it is more painful than the reality itself. We are trying to make things certain, trying to pin the world down, and it is futile. It cannot be done. And to try to do that is to suffer. And we spout a lot of energy into this. In fact, a lot of our modern culture is about trying to make things stay the same, stay steady, stay familiar, stay safe. I have a little uh, graphic for you that I like. Here's my graphic. We have a bandwidth. So here's our bandwidth. Each of our, we each have our own private bandwidth. And Life goes along inside the bandwidth. And then periodically, maybe a lot sometimes, life goes outside of the bandwidth. And when life goes outside of our bandwidth, where we're comfortable and feel okay, our tendency, what we've been taught to do, is try to push it back into the bandwidth. Push it down, get it, get it back under control, get it into the familiar. And this is true whether something is difficult or even sometimes when things go too well. When we maybe do things to sort of move away, like we have a joyful moment and then we're like, oh no, I can't do that. Or uh, just anything that's too unfamiliar. And we try to push it back in the bandwidth, try to fix the problem. And what we're doing in practice is instead of trying to push things back into the bandwidth, we're expanding the bandwidth. 
And the more we practice, the more we see that we can tolerate what is difficult, what is unfamiliar, what is uncertain, what we have never encountered before, or what we usually see as unpleasant. All of it, each time it goes out of the... And we have the possibility of expanding and expanding. And one way of understanding full awakening is the bandwidth has dissolved. Everything is within workable. Everything is within our capacity to meet it and be in a place of non-resistance. This wanting it to be within the bandwidth is understandable. Uncertainty is uncomfortable to us. We want to know. We want to know what's going to happen next. I think they've built a lot of TV shows and movies on that, right? We want to know what's going to happen next. In this culture that's set up to keep things comfortable for us. We think that if we have more wealth, if we have the right job, if we have the right partner, if we have the right situation, the right house, the right everything, then it'll all be known and certain and comfortable. And so we're all, in all of that, we're striving off after the impossible. It will never stay put. It's of the nature to change. And yet this is our basic instinct. And so part of this practice is quite, quite radical in that this instinct to try to make everything the same is instead replaced with a willingness to be with the truth of the way things are. Be with the way things are. And instead of pursuing that, to meet each moment right here. Because much of the time we think that if things change, that we've made a mistake, or somebody else made a mistake, or there's a problem. Change is not a mistake. It's what happens. And hanging on to the idea, to the particular things that are here, causes us to suffer. My body, for me, is an easy example. I used to be quite athletic and active and go up and down mountains and all sorts of things. And it's been interesting watching. I I had the good fortune, and I do mean that, when I was uh, 40, I my back had a, I'd had back surgery many years earlier, but my back went out like in a really bad way. I could barely walk. And the doctor said, oh, you know, you know, it's not bad enough to operate. And considering how it looks in the x-rays, you're doing pretty well. And I was like, but I can only walk half a block. And they're like, well, yeah, but you know, that you're, you're doing fine. It's like, this isn't really working. And, um, but the good thing about what happened then was I couldn't do all those things I'd been doing for years and years. And so I took up meditating. That I could still do. It was difficult and painful, but I feel really grateful now because that all that movement and activity that I was hanging on to got pulled out from under me. Some of you can reflect on those things that you rely on that got pulled out from under you, a job that you identified with and thought you had to have to be happy, a person a situation, and it can be really difficult and really painful. But when, um, another time that that happens for people is when they retire or they let go of a career, a whole identity 
falls away. And we discover, it might take a while, but we discover we're okay. That we can manage through that. That we can actually come through the other side and thrive. And in this, we're learning to be, it's very cliche, but to be in the flow of change. To be in a state of non-resistance. The Buddha says, better than 100 years lived without seeing the arising and passing of things, that's a phrase for impermanence, the arising and passing of things, is one day lived seeing their arising and passing. To actually see what's here. To see a change. One of the things that is being pointed to here is very interesting, I think, and we see this very clearly as we practice outside, is that our language itself and the way we conceptualize tends to emphasize permanence, a tree. We just call it a tree. And really, a tree is not like, it's not a solid thing that is just static and just going to be a tree for as long as we want to call it a tree. It's, it's more like a tree is in that location, busy treeing. And it's breathing and it's growing and it's waving in the wind and it's growing leaves, it's losing leaves, it's transpiring, it's making sugar. It's busy treeing. And at some point, it'll lose a limb or drop over. And yet we, our language is all sort of full of all sorts of nouns that make everything seem like they're separate. But the tree is full of air and earth and water. It's not a tree, it's a water lifting device. It's a transpiration activity. It's a sugar making. It's, a, it's worm food in process of being born. And everything is that way. Sometimes we get an idea because we know somebody and we know their name that somehow we know who they are. I do that with my partner, say. I got a name, I know who, he, who they are. It's like, yep. How could I possibly... How could anybody possibly fit into a name? Who knows what's being thought in one moment? Who knows what emotion is coming through? We can't even track it in ourselves. Am I the same person I was yesterday? Gosh, I hope not. So part of this is this letting go of the the belief in the static nature of the world and being willing to enter into this constant interdependent flow that we can see so vividly in the natural world. But the natural world is flowing right through here, right in each of our bodies, in each contact we have, in each breath we take. We are participants in this interdependent flow all arising and passing away. And when we recognize that, when we feel that, there's less resistance, more willingness to dance with the moment, more willing to be in this active, wild, woolly world as it does this crazy thing. And what we're doing in that also is not arguing with reality. We're letting go of our resistance to the way things are. And we think 
We have the confusion that if we hang on to we want it this way, that somehow we can make it this way, and we spend a lot of energy doing that. But it turns out the opposite is true, that if we're willing to see that things are changing and put ourselves into that changing, a lot of energy is freed up in us. We have energy to move with, to act, to act, to respond, to affect things. Because now we're with it instead of trying to be a dam holding the world still, which doesn't work. And as we relax and let this changing world happen, a lot of joy becomes available to us because we're not in a fight anymore. And as that layer of fighting gets peeled away, then the wonder and preciousness of the world starts to be coming through, allows we allow to come through. We can see this, you know, we get a sense of this in the beauty of the bud of a rose and the way it gloriously blossoms, the smell, the color, the complexity, its individuality, and its perfection in a moment, and then the fact that it fades. And an artificial rose is just not the same. First of all, no way it can duplicate the smell. But also there's something about the temporality, about that you caught the rose and smelled it and saw it just in that moment when it was in that perfect place for you to witness it. And then it fades. The temporality is part of the beauty itself. And the recognition that this moment is completely precious. That each moment is precious. You, your experience of it is precious. It's really quite magical to realize uh, in any moment, this moment will never happen again. This moment in the billions and trillions of years, this moment, as you are experiencing it, it's only going to happen right now. And then it's gone. And then there's another one that's completely new and precious and once ever. And this applies to you as well. You are a once ever in all of eternity. All the things that brought you into this existence, the experiences you have, it's here and it's just these little flashes and then it's gone. But each one, each moment is a precious, precious flash. The recognition of this can bring much wonder and awe to our experience, to our days. And when it's not quite that fabulous of wonder and awe, it still has a quality of preciousness to it. A kind of, this, this moment is worthy of our attention simply because it won't happen again. Whether it's pleasant or unpleasant, whether we like it, whether it's, it's like, wow, what's happening right now? Very important, too, when we see that it's all changing, that this moment is going to be gone in the next moment, we can enjoy it, we can see it, we can make contact with it, but we see how utterly fruitless it is to cling to it. There is nothing there to cling to. No matter how hard we try to grab a hold of it, 
it's already gone. Think of all those different moments of your life. They're all, and some of them you tried to hang on to so hard. And they're all gone. They've disappeared. This is a couple, the first couple stanzas from a poem by Naomi Shihab Nye called Adios. It is a good word rolling off the tongue. No matter what language you were born with, use it. Learn where it begins, the small alphabet of departure. How long it takes to think of it, then say it, then be heard. Marry it. More than any golden ring, it shines, it shines. Wear it on every finger till your hands dance, touching everything easily, letting everything easily go. Adios. I think of sometimes this stepping into the flow because of that word flow in my years as a <clears throat> my years as a kayaker and one of the things and you can apply this to whatever you have become proficient at perhaps as a skier or a painter as a musician as a writer as a programmer whatever you know that there's this way as I knew in kayaking, that if I tried to make something happen, that tried to do it in opposition to the river, or kind of it wasn't in keeping with the flow and the eddies and the holes, it was so much work. And that's what happens when you're a beginner at something, right? That you work way harder than you need to. And then you find, over time, you learn how the water moves, how the eddies form, how the waves are. And you work with them. And you let the current, you just get yourself in the right place, and you let the current take you. And then you let, get into a little different current, or you ride a wave over to the other side of the river. And you let yourself be in this relationship with the moving and dancing currents. And that's true whether it's the river or any other aspect of our lives, to move and dance with it, to respond and participate. In all of this, the Buddha pointed that this seeing impermanence, there's a phrase that he used that I want to share with you that's in the Pali language. Yata Bhutta Nana Dasana. You don't need to memorize it. There's no test. Yata Bhutta Nana Dasana. I think I like the sound of it too. And what it means is knowledge and vision of things as they are. And this is from the... Acharya Mahaboa Nanasampano, a person, a Thai forest person, a monastic, and he says, The heart and all things everywhere, when we're in this state of knowledge and vision of things as they are, the heart and all things everywhere are no longer enemies as they used to be. And the heart can now put all things to their proper uses. The mind knows and sees things as they are, within and without, through and through, and then stays put with purity. The mind and heart stay put with purity. So I'd like to end with a poem from Dana Feltz called Let It Go. Let go of the ways you thought life would unfold, the holding of plans or dreams or expectations. Let it all go. Save your strength to swim with the tide. The choice to fight what is here before you now 
will only result in struggle, fear, and desperate attempts to flee from the very energy you long for. Let go, let it all go, and flow with that grace that washes through your days, whether you received it gently or with all your quills raised to defend against invaders. Take this on faith. The mind may never find the explanations that it seeks, but you will move forward nonetheless. Let go, and the wave's crest will carry you to unknown shores, beyond your wildest dreams or destinations. Let it all go, and find the place of rest and peace and certain transformation. So just right where you are right now, you don't need to change, just let yourself relax. We'll just sit in silence for a few moments. Let the words settle. Connect with your body. Connect with the preciousness of this moment. And notice, this Dharma talk is over. I'll ring the bell and the sound of the bell will come and go. You'll move and go into your walking. Each moment, coming, going. Arising and passing. Allow yourself to dance with the truth of the way things are. So enjoy your walking, and the next sit, you can sit in here or once again out on the patio for the final sit of the day. Enjoy. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.